Welcome to It's Our Money with Ellen Brown. A look behind the curtain of global finance and monetary control with one of the foremost experts in the field. Author of the bestseller Web of Debt and the Public Bank Solution, Ellen Brown's groundbreaking work began the movement to create new American public banks. We'll look at issues surrounding the world of money and the systems and powers that control it, as well as the progress being made on the public banking frontier. The program is underwritten by Public Banking Associates, a national consultancy of experts advising government leaders pursuing creation of their own public banks at publicbankingassociates.com. Take a mental journey back to the time when the United States was just forming itself into an operational structure, when this place was a partially settled colonial community, albeit on native people's homeland, with wide open spaces, a lot of acquired debt, and the need to make massive infrastructural improvements. How did it come to be that America moved through those days with a financing solution that established the foundations of a great nation. Hello, and welcome to It's Our Money with Ellen Brown. I'm Walt McCree, Ellen's co-host and senior advisor to the Public Banking Institute, welcoming you to a contemporary discussion on that very issue. How do we finance the amazing amount of investments that this country desperately needs? Today's program will take a look at the American system of self-finance, and the current nationwide campaign to restore the system that Alexander Hamilton initiated over 200 years ago to finance trillions of dollars of needed infrastructure that are on the list for our needs today. The campaign is in support of a congressional move to create a law, H.R. 3339, that calls for creation of a national infrastructure bank, Today's program will share excerpts of a recent national forum on the subject in which Ellen and our colleague Dr. Robert Hockett presented the historical and practical methodology that not only helped establish the United States' early financial strength, but has been employed several times since then to make some of the biggest investments in our nation's history. First, let's start with a brief description of how this National Infrastructure Bank concept is meant to accomplish several trillion dollars of infrastructure investment without raising the national debt, deficit spending, or taxes, while creating 25 million jobs. Here is NIB leader Alfeca Mutardi, a veteran IMF macroeconomist, who described the history and scope of this enormous project. We've had four national banks in our nation's past. The very first one was started by Alexander Hamilton. This is very much a Hamiltonian concept. These four banks were very successful, built most of our nation's infrastructure. They're not around anymore because they had a 20-year uh, sunset clause in them, and that's why we need a fifth bank. But this bill in Congress will create that fifth bank, but it's modeled on the earlier four. The way that it works, and this is the Hamiltonian, again, the Hamiltonian model, is we go to the private sector who are holding treasuries and uh, ask them what, if they would like to sell in their treasuries to capitalize the bank. Uh, and that makes the them silent partners in the bank uh, and uh, gets it fully capitalized, which is a requirement of banks like this. Once the capital is in there, then the bank can give out a loan and the loan process works exactly like a commercial bank, uses the same accounting software and so forth, and then uh, actually creates money 
as it gives out loans. All commercial banks work like this and uh, create 90% of our money supply. Our bank, of course, is sized to, co to cover all of our infrastructure need for new money, which is uh, which we estimate is at the $5 trillion range. And that is based on estimates of the American Society of Civil Engineers. We want to repair all of our transportation systems, roads, bridges, uh, mass transit. We want to get all of our water infrastructure systems fixed, get all of the lead service lines out, um, repair leaking water uh, pipes and get our stormwater systems back on track. We want to make sure our electric power grid is up to uh, uh, what we need it for, which is uh, not to break down because of weather events and uh, bringing on electric cars. And we want to get a complete high-speed rail network uh, in our country where other countries have done this, uh, use banks like this, and we want our National Infrastructure Bank to be able to finance all that. Broadband everywhere. We want to build affordable housing units. This is really a big crisis in America right now. So is drought in the Southwest where we grow our nation's food supply if we don't take care of it. We're going to have higher food prices at the grocery store. And what Congress passed uh, recently, uh, the bipartisan infrastructure law, is just simply too small. It's only one-tenth of what we need. So the solution is to have a national infrastructure bank. It'll build all of our uh, nation's infrastructure. It'll lean against the wind of the economy uh, going backwards. Uh, it'll raise uh, real wages for workers. Uh, it'll help supply chain problems to get resolved. It'll raise economic growth. No new inflation because we'll grow faster. We'll produce more and all without any new taxes, debt, or deficit spending. Tell your members of Congress, we can pay for everything and we won't have to raise taxes or the, on the federal budget or deficits to do it. And this is such a great deal uh, for, for so many reasons that I've just mentioned. As you can tell, this project has quite a broad expanse of targeted objectives, nothing less than fixing and updating the outdated and broken infrastructure of America altogether, and doing it through a proven methodology. Our colleague Dr. Robert Hockett, himself a highly regarded economist and financial innovator, says that there are prevailing intellectual errors about infrastructure investing in the United States, which focus on profiteering rather than what matters, namely production of actual goods. So the two intellectual errors are, are kind of mutually interlocking. Um, the first is that contemporary or modern economics seems to have lost any conception whatever of production. It's almost as though all economics were about was sort of how to distribute or how to allocate what we've already got. But people seem to be somehow tongue-tied or even uh, to experience a kind of institutional aphasia when it comes to questions of production, right? We don't talk about how stuff gets made, where it gets made, um, how we arrange or organize production, what sort of works when it comes to organizing production, what sort of doesn't. We don't seem to talk about that. And that's one reason then why when there is an inflation like the current one, all people seem to be able to talk about is monetary policy. It's kind of as if it's like the old adage, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Well, if all you've got uh, in your mind is sort of how to distribute stuff that already exists, um, and suddenly it looks like there's too much money chasing too few goods, 
uh, you don't even think about um, doing something about the too few goods side of that equation. And instead you just say, well, let's just trim back the money as well. Uh, in other words, let's attack demand rather than addressing the supply problem as for example, Larry Summers is pushing now and even just come right out and say the quiet part out loud as Larry Summers has been doing of late saying, we need to raise the unemployment rate uh, in order to trim back on that demand. But again, it just doesn't seem to occur to these people that you might actually work on the supply side of that demand supply equation. The second intellectual error is again, I think closely linked up with the first one. And I think this one probably dates back to the Cold War period. It has to do with the idea it's basically the idea that of, of viewing uh, development or national development as a sort of one-off achievement, you know, something that you, you begin undeveloped, then you develop, and then you're done. That's all there is to it. Um, it rather than viewing development as something that is kind of basically forever, it, it, development goes on for as long as society exists, and as long as a society wishes to progress over time with technological developments and the like. Um, I think that might date back to the Cold War because it's seems that the big sort of bulge in development economic thought came as a sort of response uh, to the perception that we had to compete with the Soviet Union for client states. And so let's try to get that developing world, all these newly freed former colonial countries, um, let's help them get developed, quote unquote, in the way that we were, say, circa 1950 or 1960, so that they won't be as tempted by the blandishments of the communists. And so we basically started thinking then of development, sort of in the terms introduced by Walt Rostow, who was an economist, but who, incidentally, you know, interestingly, was uh, employed by the State Department rather than by any economic department or by the Treasury Department, say. Um, and he developed the idea of a takeoff, right? So you want to help a country reach takeoff and then it takes off and it becomes industrialized and now it's developed. That again, I think encourages the sort of tendency not to pay attention to production because production and development kind of go together, right? Uh, and indeed, one way of thinking of development is as essentially the, the sort of evolution over time of productive capacity uh, and the improvement over time of productive capacity in addition to the menu of things that can be produced. So in essence, then what we're sort of stuck with at the moment is this, all I have is a hammer problem. But in this case, it's, a, it's a, again, an intellectual problem. It's all I have in my mind is a hammer, even though we've got all these tools laid out across the table before us as Elfeka herself was just, just noting. Now, um, if I were to sort of characterize the tools in turn, or sort of come up with a way of, um, sort of a, a short form way of characterizing the kinds of tools that we have, one way to do it would be to identify this formula, uh, sort of an institutional formula that I noted um, uh, at the outset that I would, I would get to. So now I'll turn to that really quickly. We seem over time in the US when the, 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 the sort of question or challenge of development or improving productive capacity uh, has come up to have a lit on a, a kind of a two-tiered or two-part strategy. On the one hand, we think in terms of coordination. We, re we recognize that a national development problem or a national productive capacity enhancement or modernization problem is itself a complex problem. It involves lots of different industries. It involves lots of different geographical regions because we are a continental or a continent-spanning country. It also involves multiple levers 
levels of government, right? Federal, state, local, regional. And then of course, it also involves both the public and the private sector. And so you need some means of coordinating, planning and acting across industrial sectors, across public and private divides, and of course, across regions of the country and across levels of government. Now, how have we done this in the past? Um, well, basically we've simply formed in effect coordinating bodies, right? Um, the best known or the most recent dramatic example, uh, I would suggest, uh, was essentially the War Planning Board that the Roosevelt administration put into place when it became clear that we were going to have to jumpstart military production really quickly after the Germans, to everybody's surprise, overran France, which had the largest army in Europe in a mere six weeks, right? Rather than, the getting, rather than getting bogged down in trenches again, as it happened in the First World War. So Roosevelt understood, oh my God, you know, we're going to have to um, really jumpstart our production. We're gonna have to produce 50,000 warplanes a year. This was at a time when American aircraft industry produced barely 3,000 per year. And people laughed at him or thought he was smoking something. Um, but in fact, we did end up producing scores of thousands, not just of military planes, but tanks, ships, uniforms. We even jumpstarted entire new industries like synthetic rubber uh, and the like. And all of this was sort of planned out or coordinated by this board structure, which combined public sector uh, actors and private sector uh, actors together. And both public and private sort of focused on what they did best. Now, here's the key, that particular function was sort of foreshadowed before Roosevelt's War Production Board by President Wilson's War Industries Board and a kind of counterpart to, to that even you know, well beforehand in Hamilton's day, which you can think of as a sort of complement to Hamilton's bank, was a society for the promotion of useful manufacturers that was essentially founded over in Patterson, New Jersey. And the whole idea here was to sort of map out a strategy to make the United States, the new United States, self-sufficient where uh, essentially industrial capacity and the development of a diversified and mixed economy was concerned so that we wouldn't remain a de facto colony of Britain after having finally ceased being a political colony of Great Britain, which we would have been or would have done had it not been for people like Hamilton, because what we did best, the sort of comparative advantage to use the sort of Ricardian lingo uh, of the US at that time was simply to send them wood and beaver pelts, right? That's what we do best because we don't have any industry. And of course, the, Ricard the problem with the Ricardian view of this is it treats as fate something which is actually an object of choice. And Hamilton understood this and said, look, yeah, you can accept a current distribution of comparative advantage, that is to say a current distribution of capacities, but you can also alter that distribution of capacities by developing your own capacity, which you're going to have to do if you don't want to revert to colonial status. So that's one sort of piece of the, the, the sort of um, institutional secret or the, the secret recipe, we might say. The other piece, which in fact I just told you about, is the financing part of it. In other words, it's all well and good to have a coordinating body or a planning board of some kind that combines interests and industries and levels of government and so forth. 
but you also have to have some means of executing on what you've planned out or what you've visualized, what you've envisaged, right? And that's where Hamilton's bank came into place. And it's also where a little entity called the War Finance Corporation came into the story during the Wilson period, which was then followed up by the Reconstruction Finance Corporation or RFC, which was patterned explicitly after the WFC um, when the Great Depression began getting quite serious. And so the RFC then played a critical role in addition in the Second World War mobilization. So what we need at present, I think, is counterparts to both of those, that sort of both of those sets of predecessors. We need, in other words, institutions to fulfill both of those specific functions, right? And the idea of a national infrastructure bank is I think the best way to deal with the financing piece of the story. Um, and then I think in order to sort of handle that kind of coordinating body piece of the story, what we need to do is construct something that I think of or call uh, a National Reconstruction and Development Council. Um, and I've got legislation that's now being considered uh, in Congress sort of alongside the legislation that Alfeca told you about that there's probably going to be a big announcement on right after the July 4th recess from Congress. So we'll probably be hearing more about this. But one way to think about this council is it basically takes all cabinet members that are part of the White House cabinet who have jurisdiction over significant portions of the nation's industrial base or its infrastructures, uh, and in addition brings onto the board in at least an ex officio capacity, various private sector experts in the sort of industries of tomorrow, the industries of the future, the industries of the new green economy that we're all pushing uh, uh, toward, uh, all together to develop plans along these lines. You can also analogize it in a way then to the FSOC, right? The Financial Stability Oversight Council, which combines previously siloed financial regulators, or you can compare it to the National Security Council, the NSC, which brings together all of the distinct national security and defense agencies that are part of our federal government. The problem with siloing, I think we all know pretty well now, and it's fairly easy to sort of reorganize a little bit so that they're no longer siloing, but instead, are planning or mapping out what we can think of as a national development strategy or a national reconstruction and development strategy. So a, 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 a council of this sort operating in tandem then with a national infrastructure bank, essentially a financial arm that can then find the financing for and lever up any appropriations that are made to it uh, is again, sort of the secret formula, it seems to me. And that's why I think uh, the present time uh, is a particularly exciting time for all of us because we finally begin to see people beginning to realize the importance of, of, of going about things in this particular way, recognizing the sense in which our inflation problem is a supply side problem more than a demand side problem at this point and recognizing that supply doesn't simply take care of itself and that coordinating a nationwide industrial revival requires some coherent and thoughtful planning. So I think I'll just leave it with uh, a quote from my favorite development economist who most people probably don't think of as a development economist, but somebody who I think ought to be listened to a lot more carefully than Larry Summers appears to be being listened to. And that's the development economist, Bob Dylan, who famously, 
uh, uh, under this wonderful uh, sentence or, or sort of oracular pronouncement in the middle of a wonderful song where he said, he not busy being born is busy dying. The United States at this particular juncture is busy dying and it has been busy dying for decades now, but we don't have to die. We don't have to roll over and play dead. The first step to not doing that is to stop listening to Larry Summers. The second step is to put in place a council and a bank of the kind that we're talking about here this evening. As we've stated, this discussion about the new National Infrastructure Bank was predicated on the notion that the American system of finance, which was authored by Alexander Hamilton, established a new way for sovereign governments to establish themselves. Ellen described the history of that development in a PowerPoint presentation that she delivered at this National Infrastructure Bank Forum. She takes us for a quick ride through 250 years of American history that gives us an overview of how this banking model impacted the growth of nations and what it produced for the people of America and other nations who have employed it. Here's Ellen. The American system of government-issued money and credit was key both to winning the Revolutionary War, which is what, of course, July 4th is all about, and to transforming the nation from a collection of agrarian economies, which were basically colon, you know, colonized by the British, to an industrial powerhouse. To start with, the colonies issued their own paper scripts, so they didn't really have gold and silver, and still they managed to have a flourishing economy with this paper script. That worked great until King George said they couldn't do it. And then there was a depression and unemployment and uh, that triggered the American Revolution, according to Benjamin Franklin. So the colonists won the war again by just issuing paper money, the infamous Continentals. Franklin wrote that is a mystery even to the politicians how we could pay with paper that had no previous fixed fund appropriated specifically to redeem it. This currency, as we manage it, is a wonderful machine. And Thomas Paine also called it a cornerstone of the revolution. The problem with the paper continental, as also is infamously known, is that it uh, went to zero by the end of the war. Not really because the Continental, Con uh, Con continental Congress was issuing too much, but because the British were counterfeiting it. It was easy to counterfeit. It was just paper. Um, so Alexander Hamilton rescued the situation. Uh, the, the states were left with a $44 million debt, which was huge at that time. So Hamilton um, controversially solved the problem with debt for equity swaps. So he, he swapped that debt for partial payment for stock in the first U.S. bank. And that's, of course, the same model that's being followed by the, uh, by the current National Infrastructure Bank bill. Um, and that capital was leveraged into credit, which was issued as the first U.S. currency. Um, this was the fractional reserve model. Hamilton said it is a well-established fact that banks in good credit can circulate far greater, a far greater sum than the actual quantum of their capital in gold and silver. The problem was that this was the Bank of England's model. And so um, Hamilton got a bad reputation as fostering or today, you know, every time I bring up Hamilton, I get all this pushback from people that say, oh, no, he was responsible for the predatory Wall Street system that we that um, triggered the Great Depression, the Great Recession, et cetera. Um, but in fact, there were fundamental differences between the Bank of the United States and the Bank of England models, most significantly 
uh, was their purpose. One was purposed for public development, the other for private gain. So Hamilton intended that his bank would be used to establish a sovereign currency, which it did establish a banking system and be a source of credit to build the nation, uh, creating productive wealth, not just financial profit. He said a bank's function was to generate active capital for agriculture and manufacturers, increasing the quantity and quality of labor and industry. Unlike the Bank of England, the bank would issue credit to the government and private interest for internal improvements, according to Hamilton's system of public credit. It was only later that Wall Street used this credit for speculative rather than constructive purposes, gouging the public with serious interest rates, all those things that we blame them for now. But that predatory model was what uh, certain early American economists called the British system. It was, the point was to exploit the colonies through free, free trade and basically to exploit the government by making the government fund the bank. And they, you know, they were charged usurious interest rates by this private group that founded the Bank of England. And it was charted to be an instrument of government policy, it capitalized exclusively by public debts. So, and they could control the policies that the government could fund. By contrast, Hamilton's bank was to be a commercial bank. So it would essentially be self-supporting, generating credit for infrastructure and development. But it was heavily opposed by Madison and Jefferson leading to the two-party system uh, Jefferson said that, the, or Madison and Jefferson said that the Constitution didn't grant the government the power to charter a bank or to charter a corporation at all. And Hamilton said the power was implied under the Necessary and Proper Clause of Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution. He said a bank was necessary to create the more perfect union called for by the preamble to the Constitution. And of course, Washington sided with Hamilton and we got the bank. But the bank was only chartered for 20 years, and when the 20 years was up, it was allowed to expire. And then we had a period of economic hardships, which prompted Congress to uh, charter another bank, the second uh, bank of the United States, founded in 1816 under uh, John Quincy Adams, basically on the same model. Um, and it was even more controversial. <laughs> it was uh, prompted uh, Andrew Jackson's war on the bank and on its the longest standing president, which was Nick, Nicholas Biddle. Uh, Jackson thought that money should be gold and silver. And that was it. Only sound money was gold and silver. But we didn't have that much gold and silver. And you couldn't fund infrastructure just on the money you had. If you're funding something in the future, you need credit, which is uh, you know, something that you create out of what you have. So that's what the bank would do, create credit. Um, but like Hamilton and the bank, the first U.S. bank, Biddle and the second U.S. bank were unjustly maligned. Uh, the bank funded one of the most intense periods of economic progress in history. It invested directly in canals, railroads, roads, coal and iron operation, uh, enterprises, and it lent money to states and cities to do the, such projects. It also managed credit so that investments within the United States and per, from overseas uh, constantly flowed in where they were needed produ productively. And Biddle managed the uh, bank intervention in markets to stabilize prices, et cetera. So it, it worked very well, solved many problems. Um, and when after Jackson shut the bank, second U.S. bank down, we went through another period of economic crisis and Lincoln was faced with the Civil War. As soon as he got into office, 
And so he founded it by reinstate, reviving the American system and basically the, the system of the American colonists would just issue the money directly uh, with the greenbacks. And he set up a system of national banks, which the banks were required to capitalize their banknotes with government uh, debt. So those two sources of money funded the war effort and rapid economic development, including the Transcontinental Railroad. And that actually turned a nice profit for the government. Not only did it cost nothing, but it turned a profit. Meanwhile, the American system and its leaders inspired an international movement. Other British colonies revolted, including Australia, New Zealand, and Canada, and other countries rebelled against the British imperial free trade doctrines and developed their own infrastructure and manufacturing, including Germany, Ireland, Russia, Japan, India, Mexico, and South America. Um, the Commonwealth Bank of Australia, I was just reading about that recently, it's pretty interesting. It was um, masterminded by an American named King O'Malley, who called Hamilton the greatest financial man who ever walked the earth. It was definitely built on the Hamiltonian system. And through the uh, Commonwealth Bank of Australia, the country was able to fund major national development, along with Australia's participation in World War I, just by issuing the credit of the bank. In fact, the banks, the private banks said, well, you're going to need to borrow something from us to capitalize your bank. And, and the president of the bank said, no, I think we will just base it on, on the credit of the nation. And it worked. In the U.S., meanwhile, we got the Federal Reserve and the worst banking crisis and economic depression ever in 20, 1929 to 33. Of course, that was international. But so Roosevelt used the same model, the Hamiltonian model, uh, to rebuild the country. Uh, the economy with the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, funded with $500 million of capitalization initially, and issued bonds. And over the course of 25 years, it loaned or invested over $40 billion and funded the New Deal and World War II and turned a profit at the end of all that. So quite a remarkable model. <clears throat> and in Canada from 1939 to 74, the Bank of Canada uh, did the same, issued its own money, the same as the Commonwealth Bank of Australia had done, uh, issued money that it lent to the government, of course. And so these are loans. The money would go out, it would build something productive, and what it produced would pay back the loans. And again, they uh, funded their participation in World War II, education benefits, family allowances, old age pensions, Trans-Canada Highway, and um, Etc. And universal health care, their, their great universal health care system. And what happened in 1974 is pretty interesting, but obviously I don't have time to go into it. So the stellar model today is China, uh, went, which went from one of the poorest countries in the world to global economic powerhouse in four decades. So how did they do it? Uh, you know, they built 12,000 miles of high speed rail in a decade, along with the world's largest dam and powerhouse, uh, power station. How did they do it? The government owns 80% of Chinese banking assets, including three massive development banks. So again, the government just borrows from their bank, which creates credit, the credit goes out, builds the thing, and then the fees from whatever they built pay off the loan. And we could and should use that same model, which originated from the Hamiltonian model in the American Revolution for, with our national infrastructure bank and could achieve this. In this quick overview so far, we've covered the historical basis and successes of the Hamiltonian model of self-finance, which is at the heart of the National Infrastructure Bank model. 
and why we should embrace that plan now by supporting passage of H.R. 3339, which would establish that bank. The successes of previous editions of this bank model in our nation's history give solid footing to the claim that it is in fact capable of providing $6 trillion in funding for the many projects this country needs, all without raising the national debt, deficit, or taxes. Participating in the National Infrastructure Bank Forum that we're covering today was a long-standing sponsor and supporter of public banking, State Senator Bob Hasegawa of Washington State. Bob has initiated numerous legislative efforts in recent years to create a Washington State Bank. His knowledge of state finance and the economic needs of his region are deep and he recognizes the transformative role that public bank financing of infrastructure can be. In his presentation to this recent NIB forum, Bob makes the point that money is at the heart of all economic health and prospect, and that this mission of improving our infrastructure is critical, and it's also not a partisan issue. I bring you greetings from the heartland of Washington, actually. I'm in Yakima, Washington, which is, as you may or may not know around the country, is kind of the heart of agriculture country here in Washington state. And the reason I raise that issue is that this is really a nonpartisan issue. Everybody should be about improving our basic infrastructure. And when you think about the economy, what's the basic infrastructure for an economy. It's money. And if the people don't control the money, but rather private interests control the money supply, then we've pretty much relegated ourselves to perpetual indebtedness. So here we are on the eve of Independence Day. Happy Fourth of July to you all. And uh, I think it's a perfect time to draw the uh, comparison between independence for our country and independence for the money supply, which the National Infrastructure Bank proposal was all about. If I can share just a quick story, my family, my entire community, all Americans of Japanese descent were incarcerated during World War II. Many of my family members, even when they were in American concentration camps behind barbed wire with guns pointing in at them from the guardhouses, volunteered to fight in World War II. And they formed the 442nd Regimental Combat Team, which if you do or do not know, you, you should really Google it because it's an amazing story about Americanism and American history. But the reason that they volunteered, even while they were in concentration camps, was they believed in the Constitution and everything that it stood for. And they wanted to prove their loyalty, not to the political administrations, but to the Constitution. And the Constitution didn't relegate us to perpetual indebtedness and wage slavery. It, it pro provided the means for us to make for a more perfect union. It gave us the right to have a voice in how we think our country should move forward. And that didn't mean by leaving working people behind and exploiting them for their labor so that a few at the very top could get more wealthy. 
So they went on to become the most decorated unit in the history of the U.S. Army. These are fighting men who volunteered while incarcerated in American concentration camps. My goal is to make sure that their dream for a more perfect union is achieved, but we cannot do that as long as we're in perpetual indebtedness. So my ask of you all right now in this weekend of the 4th of July is to think about how are we going to build our economic independence and get back to that can-do spirit that is the American spirit. So the American banking system as originally envisioned by Alexander Hamilton as previous speakers had spoken of is the American system. We've diverged from that so far that it's all about privatization and profiteering and greed. If your state that you live in, wherever you are, is probably very similar to mine in the sense that in order to build infrastructure, we rely heavily on our bonding capacity and how much in bonds we can sell. And that constrains us to how much infrastructure we can develop. Well, the American Society of Civil Engineers says that ain't cutting it. We're at a C minus as a country. And in fact, Washington State here is at a C minus as well because you can only borrow so much money. And even though your needs far surpassed what our capacity is to borrow, we, we would, even if we could borrow that money, half of that money is going as profit to the people we borrow from. So you can see as, as we borrow more and more over the years, we're increasing our debt uh, to such an extent that we just can't borrow anymore. We have to find a better way. That's what the National Infrastructure Bank is all about, providing us the vast lending capacity, not through selling bonds, but through regular short-term loans, through using the power of money as a basic infrastructure and the power of banking to be able to finance the infrastructure we need so that we can remain globally competitive. Assembly member, he talked about China. And I have to tell you, in 10 years, they built 15,000 miles of high-speed rail. That's well beyond just the subways that connect all of their cities and the housing that they're providing or creating throughout their country. We don't have that capacity. And until we figure out how, as a country, we can re-adopt that can-do spirit and say, this is what it takes to get it done, and this is the financing capacity we need to get it done. Unless we can do that, we're going to lose our global standing. So it's, I see it as inevitable that something like this has to happen. So when you think about past Independence Days, past presidents, we think about President Roosevelt and how he has been, his programs helped develop Washington State's agriculture business through the Columbia Basin Project and Grand Coulee Dam and Bonneville Power and all of these different programs that were, some, a lot of it was meant to build infrastructure. A lot of the purpose was job development. 
And with the National Infrastructure Bank creating 25 million jobs off of the five trillion in lending capacity, in this time of impending recession, we need to have those good access to good family wage jobs. Public banks are counter-cyclical in the sense that when commercial banks tighten credit during uh, recessionary cycles because they're not so sure that their borrowers can repay the loans, public banks have a public mission, not a profit mission. So that's when public banks can inject money into our system and keep our economy go going. That's how you get through the recession. So um, my ask for you is this, that you do something similar to what I am pledging to you to do this weekend. I will be sending a letter to all of the Congress, congressional representatives, Democrats and Republicans to say, this is a nonpartisan issue. We all want what's best for America. And on Independence Day, we hope that you will consider co-sponsoring House Resolution 3339, creating the National Infrastructure Bank. So I hope that you help spread the word, educate your colleagues, talk to your community-based organizations that you participate in, and uh, let's get this done. That was Washington State Senator Bob Hasegawa. Today on It's Our Money, we're sharing excerpts of a pre-July 4th forum discussing the National Infrastructure Bank proposal that is embodied in H.R. 3339, a U.S. House of Representatives initiative which is gathering strong support across the country from both state and national representatives. Everyone who is paying any attention to the status of our nation's infrastructure and the stymied and inadequate legislative responses to this developing crisis, realizes that something big and something different must be employed if we're going to get past the political and special interest chicanes that have kept things locked in a status quo. Whether you're concerned about lead in water lines or a lack of broadband access to vast areas of America, which keeps these communities locked out of contemporary life opportunities, or environmental degradation, outdated technical resources for public systems, the lackluster transportation services that make America feel like a third world nation, the list is quite long, as you well know. We all know something has to give. The National Infrastructure Bank model is, as you've heard here, a uniquely powerful and American plan that needs national support. If you'd like to find out more about it or participate in one of its frequent Zoom webinars, you can visit www.nibcoalition.com. At the pre-July 4th NIB forum that we're revisiting on today's program, several public officials appeared to share their views about the importance of H.R. 3339. One of them is New Jersey Assemblyman Don Guardian, who reflected on the physical issues that pertain to an older state like his, which is scheduling numerous expansive investments to correct existing infrastructure issues and to prepare for a new age of investment that can carry his state of New Jersey into the future. I come from the state of New Jersey, where we have uh, a state infrastructure bank. Again, uh, a great help, but doesn't have sufficient funding 
for the needs that 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 we have. Uh, we're an older state. Uh, some things we can handle ourselves, but our future is really going to be in the hands of uh, Infrastructure Bank that we so uh, desperately need. Uh, we're doing some exciting things here. Uh, we have a hundred windmills. Uh, wind energy that is going to be placed uh, 15 miles off of the coast of New Jersey, a hundred of them, 60 stories high, producing uh, energy. But the point is that it's going to come into a system that's not currently available to handle that capacity of clean, green energy. And an infrastructure bank is just what we need to make sure that that is connected with the rest of the state, our uh, states that are close to us, and indeed the whole Northeast. Uh, recently, we tested our schools for lead in their water fountains and found that 85% of all schools did indeed have lead. Uh, that's easy to fix with a, a filtration system, but it raises the much greater question, and that is how much lead are in, in the water lines that we have coming into our homes, our offices? How about the actual water lines we have in our streets? We know as we do reconstruction, some of these water lines are still wood and have been around for more than uh a hundred years. And so the concept of infrastructure becomes critical to us here in uh, New Jersey. Uh, we're an older state. Uh, we need to be developing uh, new ways to figure out how to fix our roads, how to take care of replacing our bridges, how to build new interstates, how to work on an infrastructure program that's going to identify better ways of transportation. We all want to move to cleaner, greener energy. We all want to move to uh, electric vehicles, but that's going to require uh, electric charging stations. And so all, all of these ideas and more from cleaning our water to building our infrastructure to developing the infrastructure that's needed for uh, affordable housing, especially in our urban areas, all need an infrastructure bank. The Infrastructure Assembly of the state of New Jersey unanimously passed, I, I co-signed the bill to ask the federal government to form this infrastructure bank because $5 trillion is really just the start in the first five years. But this is the logical way for the United States to move forward and meet the needs that we're going to have. Um, I, I'm glad that uh, the two uh, Republicans from New Jersey in Congress actually voted for uh, the uh, infrastructure bank that was brought uh, to us uh, back in, in uh, November. But now we all need to work together to get our count, uh, congressmen and our senators to vote for this infrastructure bank. We've rebuilt our country four times in the past. It's time to rebuild our country now for the future. And the infrastructure bank is the logical way of funding these programs. Another voice of state infrastructure need in attendance was Dr. Alan Green, a candidate for Missouri State Auditor who reflected on how rural areas of America don't have basic technical infrastructure services that cities take for granted. As I travel the state of Missouri, uh, running for state auditor for the state of Missouri, I hear in the rural areas so many times when we're talking about, again, they don't have access to the internet. 
and they don't have fiber optics. They don't have a lot of those things that a lot of the suburban and area, urban areas take for granted. They just don't have those things. And so when we're talking about even in those rural areas, roads and bridges, they need to be repaired. And so over and over and over again, from Arkansas border tip to Iowa, the border tip, I'm hearing this. And so I just want to say for those that are out there, this is a very, very, very important initiative. And I am in support of it and many others. Again, so let's support 3339, the congressional bill. There have been in recent years numerous projects that have tried to combine the public mission of building infrastructure with the profiteering interests of private investment, public-private partnerships, as you've no doubt heard of them. In fact, investors worldwide would like to have a piece of that pie. But Professor Bob Hockett strenuously warns against that model. There are at least a couple of models for infrastructure banks or development banks that have been kind of hip or trendy at various points over the last 20 or 30 years. And and one of them, you can kind of reduce it to a case where you've got public capital being deployed and managed by private managers. Uh, In the other model, you have private capital joining public capital and it remains under the supervision of public sector actors. It's the latter uh, that we want, emphatically, it's the latter that we want. It's the former that was sometimes bandied about, again, in a kind of hipsterish sort of way by Clinton types, I think in the 1990s. Um, And that's the thing to avoid. You wanna make sure that the public sector stays in the driver's seat. And one quick object lesson, just going back to an example that I raised before, I think is very helpful here. Um, I noted that the war planning board that Roosevelt put into place uh, to sort of oversee and coordinate the World War II mobilization mixed public sector and private sector actors together. But there was never any question as to who was in the driver's seat and who was in charge. And indeed, American labor probably never had it so good as it had during that mobilization. I can show you photographs of private sector presidents of corporations being carried out of factories by US military personnel in uniform when they refused to comply with national labor laws and anti-discrimination laws and the like in the 1940s. And the thought was, we don't have time for this nonsense right now. We've got a war to fight against racists, by the way. Um, It's one thing we're not going to put up with um, in in our uh, industries uh, is that kind of thing. And of course, we saw uh, an advancement of African-Americans into managerial roles that they had previously been debarred from by racists. We saw a massive uh, entry into the workforce by uh, American women during this time as sort of iconically portrayed by Rosie the Riveter, but it was actually much more sophisticated and much more broad-based than that. And that's the kind of thing that you can do when you mix public and private on the one hand, while keeping the public sector firmly in the driver's seat on the other hand. And that's a real key difference, I think, between Alfeca's proposal, Ellen's and my proposals, the rest of our proposals on the one hand, and some of those sort of PPPs or three Ps, i.e. public-private partnerships that we heard about in the 1990s, altogether different animal. Well, then you might ask, who will be managing these projects? How does one keep out corruption and collusion that might seep in? And who decides what's going to get funding? Alfeca Mutardi of the NIB responds. The statute of the the National Infrastructure Bank, H.R. 3339, sets out these exact criteria for giving the loans. It puts the board in charge of selecting the loans and the private investors in the bank are silent partners. They provide the capitalization and we wanna make sure that the bank keeps on track 
to lend into the real sector and will assess projects on their merit to uh, produce economic growth and build the required infrastructure. One might ask, what happened to America's predecessor Hamiltonian banks that we've been mentioning? If they were so successful, why aren't they around now? Alfeca responded with an acknowledgement that we need to do things a little differently this time, and Bob Hockett adds that this needs to be a different generational effort. Uh, they had a 20-year sunset clause in them. That was the tradition, uh, I, I, I presume, uh, unless Ellen can correct me if I'm wrong, that started out with Alexander Hamilton's bank. That turned out not to be a good choice. Because when the 20 years were up and they didn't renew the institution, then they fell into hard economic times and then they came back and needed to restart it again. So the lesson we've learned from those four years, those four bank experiences were uh, in the bill now, there is no sunset clause. uh, But for the moment, we are going to try and keep this as a permanent institution. And we also don't want to make the same mistakes of the export-import bank which can't seem to lend uh, for promoting American manufacturing because every five years it needs to be renewed and becomes a, um, a political football in Congress. So the best, the best uh, role here would be to have a permanent bank. We need a permanent bank, a permanent institution, and a permanent monitoring um, um, ministry or mechanism, or, uh, if you will, planning organization, because infrastructure is a long-term and complicated job. If I could just throw in one quick thing here, uh, like I, I think Ellen's point earlier in, in discussing the history is very important to remember here as well. As she noted, a lot of people originally thought that the Hamiltonian plan was essentially a retread for the U.S. of the Bank of England model. And that was a, a, a scurrious slander, right? It was the very contrary of that, as Ellen pointed out. And I think the challenge that we have today, there's a kind of a counterpart challenge, and that's the one I sort of alluded to a moment ago in a way. Um, uh, Elfeka and I are, are very aware of the sort of false PPP model of the 1990s, and but a lot of other people are not. And some people then are likely to sort of slander our current proposals by saying, oh, isn't this what Clinton tried in the 1990s? Isn't it just PPP? Isn't that basically just corruption? Isn't that just capture of a public institution by private sector shills? Uh, And the answer is no, if we do it right. Um, So I think we have to take care to distinguish what we're pushing from what was sort of played with in the 90s in the same way that Hamilton had to distinguish his Bank of the U.S. from the Bank of England, which the Madisonians and Jeffersonians tried to kind of tar it with the image of. But pushing against the public-private partnership model is pushing against the power of private capital which we know from the public banking movement is not inclined to give way to public interest or public control. The NIB has analyzed the difference. We've actually done a paper on the pitfalls of private-public partnerships, looking at things like uh, TIFIA loans and uh, public-private partnerships to build toll roads. Virginia is a great example of that. Uh, they don't lead to good planning. They, they are high cost. They require high internal rates of return, as much as 7 to 10% internal rate of return, so high that uh, we have to um, cross-subsidize their interest rates that they charge. And they don't plan well either. That's not the best public planning that you can do for infrastructure. And they'll only build on high toll roads where they can get a maximum rate of return. They're not going to build local bridges and you know rural roads and things like that. So those are all places where uh, we, we've seen, we've had the experience that it's not working. 
plus the fact that uh, a new iteration of, of, of a national infrastructure bank in Canada also does not seem to be working very well. It's using a private uh, partnership model and um, it's been accused of giving out high rates of return to private sector parties and uh, is not a good iteration, a follow-on iteration of the uh, former Canadian infrastructure bank. So we want to make sure that we can keep public infrastructure in public hands. That's the main objective of the public of the infrastructure bank. I could maybe throw in one quick thing. I mean, I find this to be tactically helpful. If somebody is sort of a champion of, of the private sector or a private sector firm or industry for a particular public project, I also I'll always, or at least I'll frequently point out, that it's actually individually rational for private sector actors who are involved in these things to try to get the most they can for their shareholders, which is not the most that we can get for the public. So one way to say that, one way to describe this is you say, look, private sector firms are good at doing what they're meant to do, which is to make money just for their owners who constitute a tiny minority of the population. And we don't even have to demonize them. We can just say, well, you know, they, they view their fiduciary duties as being owed to their shareholders rather than to the public as a whole. But any public project, anything that we, you know, um, uh, dignify with the name public infrastructure or public this or public that has to inure to the benefit of everybody. And that means it cannot be primarily profit motivated. It can be at least break even motivated if we're trying to save money or what have you, but it should never be privately uh, sort of profit-oriented or profit-motivated, and it especially shouldn't be profit-maximization-motivated or oriented, because again, that's just for small numbers of people who happen to own businesses, and we're not those people. So there you have it, a quick look at one of the most exciting pieces of legislation sitting before the Congress right now, H.R. 3339, which intends to create a new Hamiltonian-based national infrastructure bank the same model that did so much in America's history to build the very foundations of our economy through infrastructure investments from canals to railroads to industries and through wars and economic conflicts of all types. Now, here in 2022, we have an opportunity to revive and reestablish a publicly controlled financing entity which can deliver over $5 trillion of desperately needed investment without increasing our national debt or deficit or even raising taxes and creating 25 million jobs. There's an urgent need for this legislation to be passed on behalf of all Americans, and we need to keep it focused on public service, not profiteering private capitalism. Find out more about this National Infrastructure Bank movement and consider making your contribution to its adoption by communicating with your state representatives. You'll recall that the people of America strongly supported the earlier versions of this great Hamiltonian banking model. Now it's our turn to make America great again. Visit www.nibcoalition.com. And thanks for joining us today. Well, that's it for this edition of It's Our Money with Ellen Brown. Our thanks to our guests, our sponsor, Public Banking Associates, and to you for listening. Be sure to check out Ellen's latest writings on the economy and the changing world of money by visiting ellenbrown.com. And for more information on public banking, visit publicbankinginstitute.org. 
For information on how local and state government leaders can obtain professional insight and counsel about public banks from key national experts, visit publicbankingassociates.com. I'm Walt McCree. See you next time on It's Our Money with Ellen Brown.